The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Deuteronomy. We'll be in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll be in the book of Ezekiel, we'll be in the book of Jeremiah, we'll be in the book of Romans. We're going to be all over Scripture today. Um, I was I was joking with Ben in the back that um, I normally try to include some quotes from some of my favorite theologians or Puritans, and um, I realized last night that I have absolutely none. Um, I have one quote from Matthew Henry, but um, uh, but this the the song just now reminded me of uh, of, of a Spurgeon quote. So I guess here it is for you. Uh, Spurgeon is, is famously known for. For saying whatever text that you, and I'm paraphrasing here, whatever text that you're preaching, make a beeline for the cross, uh, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so that's what we'll do here today, if that's okay with you. Um, so the book of Deuteronomy, as you're turning to, uh, we'll be in chapter 10. Chapter 10 in Deuteronomy. And as you're turning there, um, just a quick, um, a few fun facts about the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. It's the fifth book and the last book in what's called the Pentateuch, uh, or what the Jewish people called the Torah, uh, also known as the book of the law. Uh, probably a better translation, actually, is the book of instruction. Um, uh, the, the word Deuteronomy actually means second law, which is actually a bad translation because it's not a new law, like it's an actual second law. It's just the first law given again. Um, and we'll talk about that here in a second. It's a popular book. Um, I would dare say that it was probably uh, even Christ's favorite text uh, because Jesus himself quoted Deuteronomy more than any other old uh, text that he quoted. Uh, He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil, even. Um, And we're we're not covering that passage necessarily here today, but um, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, there's a reason it's known as the Romans of the Old Testament, and I think you'll see that as we go through the text here this morning. But I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a, a, an important question. What does God require of you? Now, given that all of us, we're aware, I hope you're aware, that all of us will die someday, uh, that every single one of us at some point will pass on from this earth and will stand before our Maker in judgment and we'll have to give an account for this life. Knowing that, um, the question of what God expects from us or wants from us uh, becomes eternally important, infinitely important. So to ask, answer this question, I want us to go back, uh, back in human history, uh, back to Moses and the Israelites, to, to understand what God requires of us, and, and really all of humanity, We need to look and see what God required of his people, his chosen people, Israel. And so let's read, if you would read with me. I'm going to start in verse 12, uh, reading through um, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. 
Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all the peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning humbly asking for your grace and your mercy upon us as we read your word, as we hear your word. Lord, speak to us through your word. Father, I pray that you would make me invisible so that what these people hear today would be solely from you and you alone, and they would see you in spite of me. Be with us. Show us Christ, O Lord. Show us Christ in this text. Reveal more of yourself, your goodness, and your faithfulness. We thank you for giving us your word, that we can come here freely and open it and read it and proclaim it and sing it and pray it. We pray that you would have mercy on us this morning in Christ. Amen. So as we, we're traveling back in history just, just a bit, a few thousand years, we're going back to a fairly young nation of Israel, Really, what's really the beginning of Israel, we see the remnant here. And and so the the entire book of Deuteronomy is one long sermon. It's Moses' last chance to plead with the people before they walk into the promised land. He's pleading with them to be faithful to God and to God alone. And Moses knows they won't be faithful, but he also knows that God will be faithful. In chapter 9, if you were to back up just a little bit to give us a little bit of context of where we're at, Moses reminds them of their sin. Uh, He reminds them of their own sin uh, as a reason they shouldn't depend on their own righteousness for salvation. He reminded them, uh, he went through the whole story of how they, about the golden calf and how they worshipped it instead of God. He reminded them of the second set of Ten Commandments. He, when, when he came down from the mountain, he saw that they were playing the harlot with other gods, and so he smashed the original set of Ten Commandments. He ground up the golden calf. He grinds it into a powder, and he puts it in the, the water, the brook that was flowing down from the mountain, and he made them drink it. He makes the people drink the memory of their sin against God. And yet Moses pleads with them, knowing all of that, knowing their sin, knowing how they have turned from their God. He pleads with them, knowing their faithlessness, and yet knowing God's faithfulness. And so as we get into chapter 10, he sets before them God's great mercy toward them, in spite of their sin, regardless of their sin, as a reason why they should be more obedient in the future. He, he reminds the Israelites of God's goodness and their faithfulness, his faithfulness in the first 11 verses. 
just just briefly uh, uh, overview of what he's reminding them of how God has been faithful. He renewed the tablets of the covenant for them. He chose the tribe of Levi for his own. And after Levi, he continued the priesthood after the death of Aaron. He owns and he accepts intercession from Moses on behalf of the people. And so God again and again and again has been faithful to the Israelites. And so today I want to, I want to cover three points. I want to, I want to talk about the, the requirement that God has for us, the reason he gives us that requirement, or the reason he has for giving the requirement, and the response, the response that is expected of us uh, regarding that requirement. So first, the requirement, verses 12 and 13. Let's read that again. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. And now, and now, Israel, that and now is a therefore It takes everything that is set up to this point about God's goodness and his faithfulness, his mercy, and it, it turns it. It turns it toward the people. It's a wonderful transition in Scripture. It's a wonderful transition in the life of God's people. He's asking a rhetorical question here. As I read this, this, this verse, a few other texts, I bet, I'm willing to bet a few other verses in Scripture came to your mind. Uh, it resembles the question that the prophet Micah asked in Micah 6.8, where he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. David, in Psalm 116, verse 12, says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? God both of these circumstances comes from a heart of knowing what God has done for them. And so they ask, what can we do for God? What is required of us? Now, this is an important question. It's not just a rhetorical question that doesn't require an answer. It's an important question in that the way we answer what God requires of us, what does God require of us, sets the trajectory of everything that we do. It's imperative, it's extremely important that we get this question right. What does the Lord your God require from you? We can't afford to answer this incorrectly. And you'll see that the request here is is simple. It's a simple request. Um, Actually, Matthew Henry calls it a most pathetic exhortation to obedience. It's a simple request. Moses gives five simple requirements. Fear him, walk with him, love him, serve him, and keep his commandments, right? Those are simple. And so what I want us to do just real briefly is I want to walk through each, each of those uh, and kind of draw out uh, what, what he means uh, by those five requirements. First, The first request is to fear him. Now, this means two very, very different things, depending on if you're a believer or if you're an unbeliever. If you're a believer, 
Fearing God means being in reverent awe of him. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 describes this well. uh, The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Now the, the order of the requirements here is purposeful. I want you to see that. Because fearing the Lord means to have such reverence for him, it will affect how we live every aspect of our lives. It affects everything that comes after this. It's how we view ourselves in light of a holy God. The second request here is to walk with him. To walk in a way of someone is to imitate them. It's to live according to his ways, to his plan. It's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's centering your life around God in everything that we do. Uh, this manner of, of walking with God he's referring to here um, involves the pursuit of personal holiness. Leviticus 11.44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. To consecrate yourself means to, to surrender your life to the Lord. To submit your life to the Lord. Peter picks up on this quote and quotes it. Um, if you were to go over to, to 1 Peter 1.15, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The, the imagery here is, is that of uh, the first verse of Romans 12 that says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so you see that walking with him is this, is this all-encompassing of everything that we do. The third request is to love him. Another verse that probably popped in your head as we read this is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Where Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now that's a, that's a, that's a very well-known passage. Uh, you probably have that memorized. Um, you, probably, you may even be singing a song that you know. Uh, based on that verse. But that passage that we just read is not just well known to us. It's also very important to Judaism. Uh, It's called the Shema. In Hebrew, uh, the word hear there, hear, O Israel, this is just kind of a side note, I'll throw this in for free, uh, means much more than just to listen. Uh, Its meaning includes uh, responding to what you hear or obeying what you hear. What I want you to grasp, though, is the word love in the Hebrew, ahab, both here in chapter 6 and in our text for chapter 10, uh, is, is much more than just an emotion. Uh, it has to do with the desire or powerful affection of our hearts. It brings to mind, uh, think, think of it as a longing for another God, above all else, and the land they were about to enter was was jam-packed with other gods to worship, other false gods that could grab their attention. And so the Lord here is telling them to love him, to have powerful, 
affections from their hearts for him, to desire him, to long for him. The fourth request is to serve him. Now keep in mind that Israel had just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They had just walked 40 years of of wandering in the desert. And they're, they're entering into a land that's full of blessing from God. And God says to serve him with all their hearts and souls. He wanted them to understand that they serve him not only in the way of external rituals or ceremonial actions or customs, but that they love the love that they have for him that we just talked about would overflow in service for him. Again, it's a heart issue. God has always been concerned with the heart. And so anytime we as a church, as an elder, call you to go, it should only be out of the overflow of your heart and your desire for the things of God, your love for him, that we go. We do it with our whole heart and our soul. That's the expression, the the action of our love for him. The fifth request is to keep, or, or, or you could also say to observe his commandments. This was to give constant, intentional attention to his instructions. Israel was to trust in God's salvation, his wisdom, his judgments, and obey. They were to obey God from the heart according to the prescriptions that he gives, and him alone. What, so what good is it to say, well, I love God, I do love God, but I'm not going to do what he says. You'll notice that the laws that God gave to Israel, they weren't just arbitrary laws. He didn't just come up with a bunch of laws for the fun of it and said, ha ha, follow this. This makes you look funny. This makes you sound funny. I'm entertained by this. They weren't arbitrary laws. No, they had moral laws. They had ceremonial laws. They had civil laws. And every single one of which had a purpose. Everything from marking out Israel as God's people and reminding them that they are God's people to God's uh, telling them how to worship God to keeping the peace. All of these things were the purpose of those laws. So God's law was his gracious provision to them. And so God requires complete and total obedience to his commandments. And so what does God require of Israel? Well, seemingly on the surface, it's a simple request, right? Fear, walk, love, serve, keep his commandments. Not only these these requests are pretty simple, but they're also reasonable. They're reasonable because God has been faithful to Israel when he could have just wiped them out. The faithlessness and the disloyalty of the people of Israel could have given God the complete right. He had the right to wipe them out, choose another people, and start again. But he didn't do that. Instead, he showed his mercy and his kindness because they were his chosen people. And Moses wanted to remind them of that. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. The reason God gives these requirements. The reason God has. Behold, the Lord your God belong to the Lord your God belong heaven 
and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all the peoples, as you are this day. I want you to notice something between the previous verses and verse 14. What does God require of them? Well, really everything. Their whole being, their whole self. Everything. And so there's two things I want us to capture from these verses here, verses 14 and 15. First, God makes his reasonable request. Well, quite simply because all of creation is his anyway. He created the universe, and so it's perfectly reasonable for him to ask his creatures to obey him, right? To love him and to serve him. But I want us to grasp, just, a, just an initial reading of this, you may not grasp this, so I want to try to help us grasp the, the magnitude of what he's saying here. The scale of what Moses is saying. God created the universe and everything in it. Everything. Do you understand how large and how vast and how magnificent the universe is? I won't go into it all today. I covered a lot of it in my last sermon last month about God's glory. Um, But I want you to understand how vast this universe is and how little and small and insignificant, really, we are. There's a lot of good resources that you can see how large the universe is, at least the observable universe. Just to kind of give you a, 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 an idea about that, the Earth, the sun is 93 million miles away. The sun is a million times larger than the Earth. Uh, and the sun is nowhere near the largest star in the universe. Um, I believe, if, I, if you're a science person, this may be a little off, but I believe the next closest star to the sun is somewhere around 500 million miles away, at least. Maybe it's 100 light years, I forget. Um, it's huge. And God created all of that. He created it, and not only did he create it, he holds it all in his hands. And so Moses is trying to get them to understand the greatness of God. He's conveying to us. He's saying, behold, the heavens and all that is in them belong to him. How much more should your affections belong to him? How much more should your obedience belong to him? How much more should your love belong to him also? How much more should your trust belong to him? You see, God was, God was perfectly just and perfectly right for requiring Israel to obey him because they were his creation. But they were also his by way of his, uh, his special love for them and that he elected them as his own. The contrast between 14 and 15 should just do nothing. If nothing else, it should amplify our amazement at God's grace in election. What an amazing picture. Out of, out of the entire universe and every single thing in it, yet, Moses says, 
He set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. He chose a certain people to be his, Israel. He had, he, now, God had no particular obligation to them based on what they had done. any more than any other people or peoples. After all, other peoples were his creation too. Yet it was his good pleasure and his good pleasure alone that he chose them. Look all the way back to Abraham. Abraham. Abraham didn't know God originally. He wasn't looking for God. Abraham was an idol worshiper. He worshiped the moon and other stuff. And yet God called him by his grace. And then his sons, Isaac and Jacob, you can read all that they did, and it wasn't pretty. They were sinners. We know from Scripture, God didn't choose Israel because they were better behaved. After all, Moses, from, from Moses to, to Malachi, we're told that they were a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. It's not because they were more numerous. Actually, they were, we'll read in a second that they were the smallest nation. The Canaanites were bigger than them. Um, They were not more special or more powerful. No. Moses says in verse 15, You above all people, as you are this day, the reason you're standing here today, he says, is rooted solely in the love of God for you. He's pointing solely to God's divine sovereignty. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7, Moses tells them, "You, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That means set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and he's keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here again, God exercises, he's exercising the freedom of his grace to choose whom he wills. He chose them. Why? Because he loved them. This is the self-glorifying work of God. He chose them to make them into a glorious living testimony of his redeeming work, to make his name great among his chosen people. In that previous ver- those previous verse I just read, he, he has set his love upon you. That literally means he delighted in you. This is the mystery of election. And knowing all of this, God was perfectly reasonable in requiring these things from his people Israel. And again, they seem quite simple, right? And yet we see that the response Israel was to have was actually quite impossible. Verse 16. It says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn or no longer stiff-necked. 
Now, there's a there's a there's a false dichotomy uh, in the old in that you'll hear probably at some point that the the Old Testament laws were were outward rule following, and it wasn't until the New Testament abolishment of the law that it becomes an internal heart issue. That's absolutely false. God has always been concerned about the hearts of the people. The people of Israel were marked outwardly as God's chosen people. What was that, what was that covenant sign? Well, it was circumcision. Notice that offspring in verse 15 recalls us to, uh, tells, takes us all the way back to Genesis 17 where God instituted circumcision as the covenant sign for Abraham and his descendants. And so therefore, when, when Moses says, circumcise your hearts, a couple of things should come to mind. The first thing that comes to our mind is Moses ex- is explicitly telling Israel of their need to change their hearts. You see, it didn't matter that, that Israel had this outward sign if they didn't internalize it as well. If they didn't remove the, the stubbornness from their hearts, the hard-heartedness, they had to do they had to get rid of that. The outward sign of, of circumcision was absolutely useless if they weren't obedient to the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those that are inhabiting, uh, inhabiting the desert who clip the hair of their temples, for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of the heart. Turn with me, if you would, um, to Romans. Romans chapter 2. I'll just read 25 through 29. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written letter or the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So you see, God always intended this outward sign of circumcision to be an inward change and not just an outward uh, sign. To not just just do religion, but instead long for the things of God. To not just say they loved God, but desired to obey Him also. To walk with Him, to love Him. Now that sounds great, right? Of course it does. Because God created us to commune with Him. But there's a problem. 
It's called the fall of man. In the fall, humanity was forever separated from communion with God. And there's nothing man can do to repair that relationship. You're in an impossible predicament. And you've been given a solution. God says, circumcise your heart. And yet that solution itself is impossible. Secondly, we should see that this command is beyond any human's ability to fulfill. How do you fundamentally go about changing who we are by nature? How can we change our inherited sin nature from the fall as humans? Well, the answer to that is you can't. How do we know this? Because Moses tells us later in Deuteronomy, if you were to flip over, you don't have to, but in verse uh, chapter 30, verse 6, we're told in 10, 16, circumcise your heart. We're told in uh, chapter 30, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Humanity forever separated from its creator. God requiring obedience. God showing us the required response, which happens to be impossible. And God fulfilling his own requirement in us. This is the pattern of redemption we see throughout Scripture. We see the same thing in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. Ezekiel actually calls it a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26 and other places, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out uh, the, excuse me, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Who does this? God does this. And we see the same promises echoed in, in uh, Romans 9 through 11. In Jeremiah 31, 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. All of these things that God promises are outpourings and fulfillments of what he promised in Deuteronomy 30 and what God commanded them in Deuteronomy 10. All of these five requirements. All along, God's plan was to save for himself a people, a people that were a spiritual, heart-circumcised nation. He's done that with individuals all throughout history. We've been talking about Israel. What about us? I'm going to talk to believers here this morning. If you're not a believer, I still need you to listen to me. If you're a believer here today, by God's grace, you and I will get to participate in what God planned and what he demanded and promised for Israel. He's extended those promises to those of us who were once outsiders. He grafted us in. He adopted us. He made us a part of his family. We have been made 
heirs. Romans 8, 17 says we are heirs with, of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to Paul in Romans 9, 24 through 26. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Believer, these promises that God gave Israel are true for you as well. You have been predestined for adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And he did this all in love. He did it in love for us through the precious blood of Jesus. Ephesians 2.13 is is a verse that this is absolutely incredible. It should bring every one of us to our knees. It says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Brought near by the blood of Christ. So as believers, we rejoice. We can rejoice that we have been made new. We can rejoice that God in his divine mercy has sovereignly chosen us in Christ. To kind of wrap this up, an attitude of of reverence, of God-centered living, of obeying his commandments, of full devotion to the Lord, These should be natural responses to the goodness and greatness of God. But they're not. In fact, if if we were left alone, there's no way to follow these requirements. And then my favorite two words in the Bible, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is a gift. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you see the order there? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He makes us new in Christ so that we can do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
What a beautiful picture of salvation. What a, what a beautiful picture of how the Spirit saves us, circumcises our hearts, draws us near to Him, enables us to do those five requirements that we just read out of a heart of, of love, out of a heart of desire, out of a heart of longing for Him. As we, as we look to Him and see just be in awe, reverent awe of who God is and what he has done for every single one of you believers. That's what enables us to keep his commandments. Because it's only in Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can do what God, our Father, requires of us. Unbelievers, if you're, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ. Now, we just talked about election. A question that, I, that I've heard before is, well, how can you believe that people are elected in this to go preach the gospel to people? And I say like this. If you don't know Jesus Christ, come to him. Run to him. He's the only salvation that you can know. He's the only way to, to, to know God, to be, to be in communion with God, to have a relationship to God. Run to Him. Run to Him today. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbled. We are grateful. We are thankful. how good you are to us and have been to us. Father, we, we sin against you each and every day. In many ways, we are just like the Israelites, stiff-necked and hard-hearted. But God, you sent your son Christ to die for us, to shed his blood on the cross, that all those who repent of their sin and turn from their sin and turn to Christ will be saved. It's a beautiful promise that we have. And Lord, as we, those who are believers here today, we pray, God, that you would empower them, that you would cause us to want to serve you, to know you more, to walk with you, to love you. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus.